from the Center for European Reform. This is the CER podcast. It is a critical moment. If we do not act with urgency, we would then severely undermine the liberal order. Brexit means Brexit, and we're going to make a success of it. The wind is back in Europe's sights. We have now a window of opportunity, but it will not stay open forever. Hello and welcome to the CER podcast. I'm Beth Oppenheim and I'm a researcher here at the CER. And today I have with me John Springford, who's the CER's deputy director. And every quarter the CER will evaluate the cost of Brexit to the British economy so far. So in the first quarter of this year, that figure was at 2.1% of GDP, which is a sharp contrast to the pledge of £350 million for the NHS on that fateful red bus. So how are things looking now? Uh, So as you said, Beth, that was uh, the cost of Brexit to the first quarter of 2018. We're having to do this on a bit of a lag because it takes time for the data to come through. So uh, we now have the data for the second quarter of 2018, i.e. to June. And we've changed the model a little bit, but not in a way that changes the overall figures particularly. And the cost of Brexit to June 2018 was about 2.5% of GDP. So the economy, had we voted to remain, would be about 2.5% bigger than it is now. Okay. So unsurprisingly for such a fraught topic, you've received some comments and some criticisms on your modelling, which you took very well. (laughs) Thank Um, you. So how have you responded to the feedback you've received? Have you revised the model? Have you run tests? What, What have you been up to? Yes, is the answer to that. Yes, we have revised the model. So obviously we got some feedback which we didn't take particularly seriously, but there was also some really good criticism which was very helpful and we took the decision at the beginning that Uh, we should be as transparent as we possibly can. So we shared the underlying data set of all of the data in the model. We shared the code so that if you had Stata, which is a fairly commonly used econometrics uh, package, then you could just run the model and have a look and play by yourself. And we also shared the the results data. Um, And so some people went through it and had a bit of a tinker. I got some very helpful feedback about how to change the model uh, for various reasons from them. And some people had some actual conceptual criticisms of the model, which were also fair and interesting. The criticisms are essentially twofold. Uh, One of the criticisms was that the original model had um, quite a wide array of countries in it. They They were all fairly rich countries. They included some um, who say GDP per capita, whose living standards um, were about sort of 60% that of the UK, like Hungary and other countries in Central and Eastern Europe. The criticism that we got about that was, well, you're kind of comparing apples and oranges because you would expect these countries to grow faster because they can catch up with the more advanced economies just by taking some of their technology and having lots of investment. And so... By having those in the model, then surely that's going to bias the estimate upwards. So we took that on board and we restricted the number of countries to just very rich ones. Basically, we used the IMF's definition from 1995 of advanced economies, you know, ones that were already by 1995 rich. And that brought the number of countries down from 35 to 22. So that's one thing we did. The second thing that we did was we changed the way that the programme tries to find 
a basket of countries to compare the UK to. And the way that this model works is the computer program thinks, okay, this is what the path of UK GDP has been over the period that we're using. And there are several other countries that it can look at and compare the path of GDP to. And we take the countries whose GDP growth best matches that of the UK. Um, so that's one thing that we do. The second thing that we do is we take lots of other different economic characteristics of all of those countries like do they have a very well educated workforce what's their investment rate are they you know do they have a fairly high investment rate are they particularly open to trade and various other parameters and we try and create a kind of synthetic doppelganger UK which has very similar economic characteristics to that of the UK and whose growth path is quite similar so that's a long way of saying the second thing that we did was we added more and we think more robust economic characteristics a wider array of economic characteristics like schooling and years of schooling and so forth just to try and make sure that 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 doppelganger uk is as close to the uk as possible and once we'd done all of those things um, we ended up with something which was not actually markedly different from the original model in terms of the cost of brexit but one which is much more robust towards sorts of different tests to make sure that it wasn't just including some random country in the model which wasn't really like the uk and which didn't necessarily follow the uk's growth path particularly closely after the referendum was held so long story short it's a more robust model it works better the results are about the same the cost is about two and a half percent of gdp Great, so that's good news for you then that it came out similar. Yes, um, absolutely. No one can accuse you of not doing due diligence. <laughs> yeah. So to return to the numbers then, it's not looking good. Mm. I guess what a lot of people want to know is what kind of tangible effects will that have on the public finances? Mm. How will people feel that? And is it right to suggest, as, as some media picked up on your reports, they said that the government's austerity plan would have actually been nearing mm. its end if the UK had voted mm. to remain? Mm-hmm. What do you think about that? So, I mean, we we did a very, well, very rough. We did a rough calculation of the cost to the public finances that this kind of Brexit cost to the economy would imply. So, obviously, if the economy is smaller, then there's less tax revenue that the government is able to raise. And also, there is there is some higher spending that goes on simply because, say, you know, if you're in receipt of a, a tax credits, for example, then that's income contingent. So if your income had been a bit higher, you know, because we had voted to remain, then you wouldn't be receiving those tax credits. So public expenditure would be would not be such a large proportion of the total. The cost to the public finances, according to this fairly rough calculation, was in the first quarter of 2018, about 440 million a week. And in the second quarter, that had gone up to about 500 million. The way we calculated that was essentially using the um, government's own analysis of what the cost to the wider economy of Brexit would be to the public finances. And it works out that you end up with a, a fiscal cost of about half the size of the economic cost to the public finances. So yeah, it's about 500 million a week. And yeah, that does imply, I mean, if that's on, a, uh, on an annualised basis, we're talking about 26 billion. And, you know, the government's net borrowing our forecast for this year, um, which is, should be fairly accurate, we've got data up to August, would be about 27 or 28 billion. So, you know, without that cost to the public finances um, that has come from Brexit, it's a fair, 
fair um, estimate to make that we'd essentially not be borrowing anything by the end of this year. I suppose it's, it'll be interesting to see whether people kind of register this because of the fact that we have been in this prolonged period of austerity and whether or not, because it's kind of a continuation of the status quo, people don't really pick up on that. Yeah, I think that's that's an excellent point. And I, I, I think also the fact that the Treasury short-term forecast, which they made before the Brexit vote, has turned out to be wrong, at least in terms of the way that the economy would react. We haven't seen unemployment rise. You know, the unemployment rate is the lowest that it's pretty much it's been for a long time I think since the 1960s or 70s and it, it, the economy doesn't feel like it's really stuttering unemployment is low but there is I think a very clear and fair uh, estimate of the actual economic costs that we have put out and that suggests that actually the economy is it w- would be quite a lot larger two two and a half percent and that people's wages would be would, mm. would be higher and growing more strongly this is the thing isn't it because it's all about hypotheticals what mm. it would have been mm. had we not done x and yeah. so it's hard for that to be a strong political message and people to register that so the other point i suppose is an obvious one which is that we obviously haven't actually left the eu yet so the question is once the uk has actually left what what do you expect to happen to that cost estimate well, once the UK has actually left, it's going to enter into a transition period um, if we end up with a deal, um, which I still think is quite likely. I mean, if that if that happens, then we can probably expect the way the con- economy ha- has performed so far to continue slower growth than we would like and probably slower than a lot of the UK's peers. Um, and the model will show that up. So I expect that the, the costs will continue to, to mount. But if we enter a transition, we're not going to end up with some big shock, which is which would push us into recession. However, if we end up with no deal, then all bets are off. It's difficult to know exactly what will happen, but it seems plausible that we would end up with quite a big hit to economic growth, possibly a recession, and certainly some quite big economic effects, possibly higher unemployment. Whether that shock will be big I'm not sure it might not be nearly as big as a lot of people think but it will be different to the smooth transition out of the EU that you know agreeing a withdrawal deal (laughs) agreeing a withdrawal deal having a transition period negotiating a sensible deal at the end that would that would mean a much more smooth path out of out of Brexit into Brexit I should say (laughs) we wish thank you very much John that's really helpful Um, and it's good that you've strengthened the model which I think is important given the political potency and how controversial this topic is so we'll be back with another update next quarter thanks Beth thanks bye thank you for listening to the CER podcast if you have any feedback for us or want to leave suggestions for a future episode then you can find us on Twitter at CER underscore EU